historical fiction about the westward expansion. We'll talk about that and more on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fundwise Capital. Fundwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals. Connect with Fundwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here. As always, we're going to talk about more historical fiction today. Uh, coincidences? I don't know. Um, as I've mentioned so many times on this program, I stopped believing in coincidences. Oh, you hear that little high-pitched crack in my voice? <laughs> uh, it's morning for me. A really early morning for me. It's one o'clock in the afternoon, and it's morning for me. Uh, I lived the life of Riley, folks. I mean, I'm up playing rock and roll music till four or five o'clock in the morning, and then get up at one o'clock to do my first show here, and then it's off to the races and all over again. Uh, so I we a very unusual life. So this is morning for me. You're you're seeing me uh, half an hour out of bed. <laughs> so, sometimes that crack in the voice uh, will happen. Anyway, uh, I I stopped believing in um coincidences when i started doing this show i mean things line up and lately we've had an awful lot of historical fiction uh and i'm wondering what what the message is in for me in this uh run of historical fiction authors but i'm looking forward to talking to today's author about uh the book that she has written uh primarily because it's got santa fe in it (laughs) I'm I love Santa Fe, uh, but I'm also um, very interested in the whole topic of the westward expansion and and you know gold rush and all that kind of stuff that brought people out to California looking for the promised land uh, and you know all, all that uh, created the America that we we know and live in today. Uh, so it should be a very interesting conversation. Just uh, a couple of programming notes. I did finally reconnect with Paul Provenza and we're going to be getting that interview done probably uh this week sometime I know we only have a couple of days left this week but uh, I will wrap up the the details of that right after this show today I hope you enjoyed Monday night show 
Henry Phillips, uh, one of my favorite interviews of all time. Henry Phillips, you can check out both his movies uh, on Amazon Prime, uh, Punching the Clown and, and Punching Henry. Uh, his TV shows are at henryphillips.com. You can find out about The Highwayman and uh, Henry's Kitchen. And he's going back out on tour, starting in Wichita, Kansas this month. So uh, I hope you will su- continue to support Henry. One, a great guy, great interview. Uh, you know, one of my one of my favorites of all time, and I really appreciate him stopping by. Then you're wondering what happened yesterday. Well, the Bujos, California cigar box blues band, or we're supposed to be here. I screwed up. Uh, I thought all my shows. I thought we had no one p.m. shows today, and I didn't even. I this one wasn't on my calendar until yesterday. Also, I thought we had no absolutely no one p.m. shows. So I was expecting him last night at eight p.m., but he was waiting for me at one p.m. Uh, yesterday. So screw up on my part. A very. Uh, it's not something I do often. I do make mistakes, folks, uh, and I apologize about that. So we didn't have a show yesterday, but we have one today, and we're going to talk about. Historical fiction. Sarah C. Burns is a local historian, and when I say local, I mean, uh, <laughs> I guess I'm I'm talking about like the Bakersfield area of California. We certainly don't mean local to where I am, Long Island, New York. She's a local historian and author. Uh, she has authored several books. She's gained an international reputation as a distinguished researcher in the field of gender and race relations, as well as developed a very first survey course on women's history in Bakersfield College. Bakersfield, California, the streets of Bakersfield. Um, She's going now uh, back to writing books, and her latest is called Cooksville, USA. In uh, in the book Cooksville, uh, it's a fictional Western town whose story and location and people have been ripped from the pages of history from Santa Fe, New Mexico, which I love, you know I love that, uh, to the gold fields of California uh, California in 1850, to settling Cooksville in California's Central Valley. Its colorful characters bring to life the true drama of westward expansion. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Sarah C. Burns to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to meet you for the first time. If you're familiar with Santa Fe, perhaps you will be familiar with one of my early characters in the book, La Tools. Have you heard of La Tools in yeah, Santa yeah, so, Fe? The oh, she ran, she ran the town. Yeah, she yeah. was really integral to Americans passing through to the Mexican War and uh, keeping peace in the town. There was no warfare in Santa Fe. It happened yeah. below the border. So I she, loved- she was a kingpin. I love Santa Fe. Now, uh, and a a big part of the lore for me is the Lincoln County Wars and all that stuff. I was a huge Billy the Kid. Like, uh, I mean, I had a crush on a man crush on Billy the Kid like you wouldn't believe growing (laughs) up. Uh, What what is your uh, tell us a little bit of your backstory and the connection to Santa Fe and and what makes that a special place for you? Well, um, I'm a transplant to California from Kentucky, and we often went that route. You know, the original pioneers either took the Northern Oregon Trail or came through the Southern route through Santa Fe and then up the old Spanish Trail across the Tehachapi's. Well, uh, I'm also a transplant to Bakersfield. I grew up, finished growing up in Orange County, then moved to San Francisco and British Columbia, and then I ended up here. And uh, I never expected it, didn't want it. But uh, for, through marriage and careers and another marriage, uh, I found myself always trying to escape this town until I finally gave up and said, you know, it's 
pretty darn interesting place. So as a 26 plus year historian, I just started uh, gathering the stories that I'd heard for years and that I was a part of. And um, so Santa Fe plays an integral part to transplanting Frank Cook and his Choctaw wife into the gold fields of California, where they made their fortune along with many others, and then decided to come back down to the southern, my fictional valley of the San Andreas Valley, uh, and planted the town of Cooksville, you know, humbly named after himself, and the river, the Cook <laughs> River. It's not the Curran River, it's the C Cook River in my book. So they brought with them that Spanish culture, you know, the, the flavors, the styles. And uh, through Lily, the Choctaw wife of Frank Cook, that was put into this community, along with the Chinese and Native Americans and mestizos that followed the party, the entourage, down here and uh, began this town. It's not unlike Colonel Baker, who created Bakersfield. He had his own homestead before the Homestead Act was really legal, but he settled here. And as uh, Spaniards and other pioneers traveled up and down through California, he allowed them to stay in his field. So it became Bakersfield. What 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 happens? Uh, the connection I make when listening to that answer immediately is I go back to your, the intro that I read about you and race relations, and uh, you, you mentioned he he had a Choctaw wife, and you mentioned a lot of different racial um, components uh, into the mix there of of what made up that part of America. I don't. I think a lot of people take that for granted like uh first of all a lot of people who are not from california and don't study the history uh don't realize that uh, of the chinese um uh, makeup of the area there there were a lot of you know we think of a lot of people when they tend to think of chinese immigrants they think of the traditional route which is you know new york and, and ellis island and all that stuff but the chinese came to california way before they found the east coast uh was that an intentional because of your, your past and, and your experience in, in researching race relations, uh, was that a, a, a significant, important thing for you to include in the book is this racial diversity that you were just talking about? Yes, because it, the book is based on the reality of this town. And there are founding families from all of those cultures that have been here for more than a century and decades at least. So it does it does have those roots. The Yokuts Indians are local Native Americans, but when uh, Mexico ousted Spain by between 1821 and 1823, there were a lot of Native Americans on the land that were released from the missions. And they were not considered citizens when California became a state in 1850. Bakersfield was founded in 1850, so I had to make Cooksville founded at the same time when all of this vigilante justice was occurring in favor of the white man. So Native Americans were looking for a place to fit in. The former Spanish dons could maintain their land, but they didn't have the constitutional rights that white men did in 1850 California. So all of it just calls for vigilante justice. I had to make my stalwart family, the Cooks, the harbingers of that. They were looking out because as soon as uh, Lily, the Choctaw wife, became pregnant, Frank Cook realized uh, he's going to be, this child's going to be a half-breed. This right. child is not going to fit in. I've got to protect my wife and my children. So the fictional community I created was based upon 
uh, I've got to be the head honcho. So <laughs> they, after making their fortune, traveled back to a place that they loved because of the river delta that's in this region. Of course, the Kern was a delta back then and uh, into the 20th century. So uh, that's that was not only due to my background and knowledge of California history, which I have taught several times. I always teach U.S. history for 26 years. I always teach women's history, and I've been teaching African-American history for a couple of decades. Wow. So uh, I'm aware of the fabric of this community, and it is that diverse. But well, uh, I am very uh, privileged to be able to talk to you today because I'm a history buff, and as you know, uh, earlier this week, we had what is now being called Indigenous Indigenous People's Day, right. and uh, and and I hear the term Native Americans, and I, I want, and you know what? I know it's a sensitive to, uh, uh, topic for people, but I like to say there really are no um, Native Americans. What we have are people who got here before the white Europeans got here. So instead of European uh, Indigenous People's Day, I say people who got here before the white Europeans day. <laughs> but, exactly. Uh, I, I'm just curious about because the Chinese there were there was some. And I'm not I, I don't know about this and I'm ho hoping you can clarify it for me. But uh, some conjecture that the Chinese might have gotten here, gotten to California long before um, even the Vikings got to the East Coast of, uh, of America. Do, what do you know anything about that? And can you enlighten me on that? Well, I'm I'm not uh, Chinese history in California is not my strongest suit, but I can tell you that I was surprised years ago in traveling up the California coast. Uh, when I visited Mendocino, there were landmarks around that area of Chinese that had been there since the 1600s at least. So I don't know if they were here in California before the Vikings, but the route seems very logical because of that land bridge across which Asians migrated. It's, you know, would have brought them from Siberia to Alaska today. But when the ice melted in the ice age, the land bridge was covered up slowly. And you know, when land disappears, it's not overnight. So right. people who have taken that route for centuries and centuries, thousands of years, they're aware of it. So the migration would have continued and they are all of Asian descent, whatever part of Asia from could have been today's China. It was definitely Siberia. And they settled in regions where, you know, the climates they're accustomed to, whether they were Southern Asia or Northern Asia. Wow. So uh, the Chinese were in, along this California coast long before the British uh, colonies existed and then became, you know, the early United States, the original 13 states. So they were out here. And they were establishing themselves along the coast and they were ready to work in the gold fields and on the uh, Transcontinental Railroad and then spread out after the Transcontinental was built. But <clears throat> they've been an early presence and deserve more respect <laughs> than they've received historically. Well, but they, I... they relied upon vigilante justice around the San Francisco area as well. Very, very interesting and deep because uh, you can go so many ways with with the the ideas uh, that are presented here. Now, because uh, in today's society, we see a lot of um, 
animosity between race, races and stuff like that. And, and it's really, it can be really ugly. Do you know at the time what, because we have this almost like melting pot in California, and I don't, I didn't even uh, ask you yet whether, you know, there were a large number of African Americans, but we know we have whites, we have, uh, you know, Caucasian Europeans, we have, uh, we have Mexicans, we have Chinese, and we, we have kind of a melting pot. Was there a uh, a sense of division there, or was, was it you know you know people pitting against each other, or what, or were they getting along better than we are now? Uh, the, I think there was always division because, as I said, the the California Constitution allowed the white man to vote and to be elected, and no one else and specifically states that Chinese could not testify against a white man. Other races could not testify against a white man. So there was that control and superiority and hegemony right away as soon as the state was established. As far as African-American presence, when the 49, you know, gold rush occurred, from that point on, there were some who escaped the South and uh, came to the West because they had more democracy, if they had a talent, you know, and, and a hard work ethic, and they deposited themselves throughout the West, including in California. But uh, as far as getting into the gold fields, that's why when California became a state, the white man made sure that there, it would be a free soil state because he didn't want Southerners bringing their slaves into the gold fields to get more gold than him. Right, yeah, yeah. So they were not there. They were not there in the gold fields unless they wanted to be a cook or they wanted to work for the white man. But the, the Chinese were so willing to do that because really the best money was in setting up hotels, bordellos, uh, you know, a cookhouse, selling food, selling women, booze. <laughs> as soon yeah. as those men uh, got their gold, they wanted uh, to have some fun. So there were black people present, but not in great numbers until the uh, early 20th century and beyond when they're escaping lynchings and discrimination and segregation in the South. Then they came westward, especially gotcha. after World War II. Gotcha. So I, I'm under the impression, and again, I know you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that the gold rush was very short-lived. I mean, I, I was thinking 1849 to 1851- tops uh and then it, be it became a depression kind of era you know it kind of the bottom fell out of it uh uh is do i have that correct first of all well it continued in california i i have a good textbook that that covers that issue it's just that the first rush it was so easy you know at sutter's fort the first man who discovered gold stumbled upon a gold nugget it was lying there in the dirt so they called it dry diggings back then They'd scoop up the soil and they'd find the gold in the soil. Well, pretty soon, the first claims, those are the most significant from 1849 to 1851, as you're saying. Those are the significant ones. Those are the, the wealth builders. After that, they had to dig deeper and deeper, and they dug in to the Sacramento River and the American River deep down. Hydraulics came into use in order to find that gold, or dig into the earth as deep as you can get and start uh, sifting. So, yes, the first two years, the people that were, you know, jolly on the spot at the time, they were, they got the greatest wealth, the greatest peace. But they could sell their claim later, too. But see how much I've made? <laughs> I'll sell it to you for this much. And that's what Frank Cook did. Interesting stuff. Have you ever asked the big question, what the hell, what the hell is it about gold that makes you, the human race go in, insane? 
because <laughs> I want to know. I mean, I know because oh, I'm going to have an economist on uh, a trading person on Thursday night. And I've asked this question of all the financial people. I mean, I, I don't know what we base our money on now because it's it's kind of just like an imaginary thing. We agree that this paper has some value. There was a time when gold backed it up. But even then, I come to the question like, what makes gold that valuable to us in the first place? It's it's Maybe I'm just a really small brain about this kind of stuff. But I want to know what makes the human race go gaga over a shiny piece of rock. Uh, there had to be a standard upon which currencies were based. And so those became the most lasting, gold and silver. That's why the Spanish, when they came across the Caribbean and to Mexico, they became for a while the wealthiest nation because they got, they got to dominate the silver industry. Silver and gold are more long-lasting than any currency or more secure than a piece of land in reality because wars and skirmishes are fought over land and it can be taken away but if you've got gold in the bank which frank cook did thankfully and there was a real specific bank right there in san francisco that they were all depositing once it was the gold was valued and assessed so you have to have a gold standard you know that we know about that after world war ii the dollar became the most secure currency in the world and it was based upon a set it was pegged i can't remember right now it was over 30, it was something like 32 to $37 an ounce, and it was pegged there, and economies were stable as long as our strong economy and the U.S. dollar were based upon that, that value. And we had that in Fort Knox, right, and the Denver Mint, too, and places like that. They were secure. The, the metals were really there and counted. But when you start eh, taking it off, like Nixon did, he closed right. the gold window. Other nations wanted our currency and our gold, and they were buying it. He said, oh, I'm just going to close that window then. Yeah. Well, that's a whole topic for another day because I've had conspiracy theories, uh, theorists <laughs> on the program that say Fort Knox is empty and it's been empty for a long time, which is kind of uh, <laughs> one of those theories that are out there. But right. uh, back to your book now. What? How long a period do you cover in this book? It starts in 1850 or... It starts in 1846 when Frank Cook is traveling. He's been with the U.S. Cavalry helping to uh, control the reservations out west, which is really the conundrum he has when he meets Lily and falls in love with her and decides, I'm never going to do that again. Her Look what her family went through to escape the reservation. He becomes part of the Mexican War, and once he's through with that, he, he's through with warfare. He's had enough, and he goes back to Santa Fe to meet Lily. But my book goes from there all the way into the 21st century. And really, the most exciting part of the book is a crime investigator right here in this town. I knew him personally. My husband and I dined with him every week. My husband worked with him in a law firm. He's an attorney, my husband. And he had been a criminal attorney, a family law attorney. But he knew, I'm going to say Lenny. And I could easily slip and say the real name because it's so close, but I'm not going to. Um, the real crime investigator, anyone in politics or the court system, any attorney, everyone knew him around town. He was the ultimate gumshoe. I can compare him to Ray Bosch in his uh, fight for the truth and uncover the truth, but I can most closely associate him with with Ray Donovan, because he's a fixer, and he was a fixer for the leading criminal attorney here in town. And when he was sent out to do a cover-up, he did the cover-up. 
he walked away with the evidence. He cleaned up the scene because they were representing a criminal. And so this attorney, he was here in Bakersfield most of his life. And uh, Cooksville, he's the head honcho as far as the criminal investigating community. The real man was a G-man that went to Las Vegas to investigate the mob when they were skimming. They're setting up the saloons and the uh, casinos. Uh, Bugsy Siegel was building the Flamingo Hotel. He was there rubbing shoulders with them and, and watching them skim and investigating, which led to all of his information, helped the Kefauver Committee shut down that's the skimming operations in Vegas. So he's the real deal. He was over there. He came back to Bakersfield. He was involved in the cover-up for one of the leaning murder crimes that was tried here in Bakersfield. Um, I call the man Ace Gentry in my book, but it's Spade Cooley. You may have heard of him. He was a country western crooner. He was a friend of Roy Rogers. He looked like Roy Rogers. He was a uh, second for Roy Rogers in his television shows and movies. So uh, Lenny has been through all of the major crimes here in, in this town. And so all of the crimes that I report are even, either exactly as they were or you know very close to what they were. I fictionalized the time frame slightly, uh, the names of all of the victims and the uh, murderers and the criminals and the love affairs and the extramarital affairs. He investigated all of them. He had his camera handy and he was he was the fixer. So now he this, is he's the through story. <laughs> this book actually crosses uh, several genres then. It's kind of a historical fiction, I don't want to say true crime, but based on true crime type of uh, uh, novel. It's got a whole lot of stuff now. I, I did not know that it, it was going to span that kind of period. So uh, uh, how long has the book been out, first of all? It was uh, published and available June 29th of this year. Uh, and who was the is the the audience for a book like this? Because I would think it would be hist history buffs, people like me, people who love the old West and stuff. But uh, I, I'm just curious who who is your audience for this? Do you know? If if you love dram dramatic crime thrillers and solving the the mysteries as they unfold, you'll love this book. It is especially appealing to people right here in Bakersfield as they're flipping through and saying, I know who that character, I know her well, and I know him well, or I knew them. Uh, but it's, you know, in that, in that uh, manner, it is kind of like the help, the movie and the book, the help people walking around reading it and they're calling me and they're saying, oh my gosh, you got that one right. So it's fun here, but it's also fun for a broad audience who loves crime dramas and erotic sex. Let's just go ahead. It's very explicit. Wow. <laughs> you wouldn't guess that from the cover. And I'm looking at the cover. We, we're showing the cover right now for the people on the audio side. Uh, you can't see it, but come to come to the video uh, stream sometime and you'll be able to see these things. Showing the cover now. Uh, and you would never, if you saw this book, you would never think there's going to be explicit sex in this book. Uh, so uh, I have to add, that cover, uh, the, where is that? Is that Bakersfield or is that Santa Fe? It's neither. It's uh. a desert town here in California called Bodie. And it's an old ghost town. So that represents the old west. And then in the cloud up there is the future, which becomes Cooksville. Right. So. Right. 
Very cool yeah. stuff. Now, right. uh, the the link between Santa Fe and uh, you know, I I'm going back to Santa Fe because I love it so much. But uh, the time around Santa Fe was very much, um, or especially around a little bit later in there with the House of Dolan and, and Murphy and all that stuff, um, monopolies uh, and, and monopolies. And we're talking about barons who want to complete control over everything. Is your character Cook? Um, one of these people who just wanted wanted to dominate the the area and wanted a monopoly on things out there, or or not? No, but he he uh, he and his family, throughout the generations, work hard to make sure that that doesn't happen in Cooksville, because this is a valley of cash crops and food crops and uh, lots of agriculture and oil and a lot of money to be made. Uh, there were. When I was first brought to the scene, every oil company uh, in the United States or associated, including Occidental, had a large office here and a large presence. And then there was Calcott, the cotton industry. So this region drew a lot of Southerners. You know, the, it's settled by a lot of Okies. That's, it's famous for the Okie migration oh. during the Depression. So they came over and into the agricultural valley to pick beans and to pick other crops. And uh, there's a large section here north of the river that was uh, really known as, it's called Oildale today. It was settled by Okies from Oklahoma, just like the Grapes of Wrath, where they came over the, the mountains and they started their lives here. That happened in this region. And so in Cooksville, it occurs. And the growth of all of those industries leads to a lot of wealth. But there are Italian families who have been here since before California, their heritage goes back before California becomes a state. Wow. So there's a rich, and it's the interesting thing about this end of the valley is it's so not like Los Angeles Southward, which is a concrete jungle all the way. Here, you've got borders, and families know families, and they've known them forever. Some had mob connections. Some uh, just passed their wealth along. They have hunt clubs. They, you know, there's you know about them once you've lived here a few decades. I've been member, I've members of the country clubs and tennis clubs, and I've played with all of them and socialized with all of them. So I've picked up their stories and watched their affairs. <laughs> and uh, there's, it's hidden to the people who are freeway flyers passing by, and they see this what they think are the streets of Bakersfield that. Uh, <laughs> that our most famous country western singer here uh, sang about he and um oh my god uh, Dwight Yoakam and, Bu and Dwight Buck, and Buck Owens yes yeah. I, I met <laughs> Buck Owens several times it's one of those funky towns where you'll be out and about and and hanging out with them wow. so it is people don't know of the beautiful very widespread gated neighborhoods and uh the wealth to be made if you're just passing through, but if you've lived here a while, that's what I wanted to uncover. As I was as planning my escape from this town, I finally decided, <laughs> no, I know the stories and I've got to tell the stories and they are intriguing. They're never boring. It's not a boring town. Interesting. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned the Oki connection and I, that hadn't occurred to me, but it seems to me that's where Bakersfield got its reputation for what what's known as the Bakersfield sound. It's this like um, California, not necessarily country, but it ha it's a, a country flavored, uh, just 
Western sound, and it's known as the Bakersfield sound. And Buck Buck Owens is kind of known as the father of, but you know we have people like Merle Haggard and all that stuff, and it's a big tie in some ways to the music that came from Oklahoma. And I, I didn't realize that until you just mentioned that you know the, the huge oaky influx into that area it's uh has you ever uh cover any of that like the 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 musical influences that came to that area that make it very special people know bakersfield just by the bakersfield sound and people have never been there right you you talk about it's known as nashville west right and um yeah i i do bring in the music as i walk my readers through history I have the old AM and FM stations and you turn it on and you hear Hank Williams uh, singing or you hear Patsy Cline and I bring it through the years as my generations go forward, the music of the period. So that does come come into play in this book because it is a unique town. It's very, I, I remember the first time I came here and said, I'll never live there. I didn't see the best of it and that was a long time ago. and. Um, but it's nothing like Southern California. Right. But there are families here that feel like royalty because they've been here forever and they have a lot of money. Uh, and I, there is that look. There is just that look. The pickup, the heavy-duty pickup, the starched white shirt, the jeans, the cowboy boots. The sh- you go out on uh, to a Basque restaurant on Thursday or Friday night, and they're there. A lot of pickup <laughs> trucks. Yeah, a lot of pickup trucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the, this idea of not expecting the way that your life is going to go. And sometimes fate has a way of, of, of uh, throwing you a curveball. And then you find out you actually enjoyed what you thought you would did, you, you wanted to get away from. I want to come back to that in a minute. But I just found out uh, just this week, and I started thinking about it, uh, uh, the uh, Transcontinental Railroad was actually started during uh, the Civil War. And uh, that fascinates me that we could. And I know we have when we have wars, the nation still goes on and there are projects funded and the government must go on and we, we do things. But it never occurred to me like an undertaking, like building the Transcontinental Railroad during a civil war on our own land while we're still fighting each other. California's. Um, experience during that that period of the civil war were they very much involved was it uh they kind of um, disassociated from it in some way or can, can you enlighten me about what was going on during the civil war years out there right well the civil war was primarily fought in the south you know there were the border states of maryland kentucky missouri uh that lincoln didn't want to lose because he it gave him ingress and egress into and from the south, and he could use the railroad system there to t- move troops around. So he didn't want to be too critical of their slavery there. But industry in the north went on, while in the south everything had to turn toward the war effort because they were the ones that seceded, and the north the Union forces came into the south. But the transcontinental went through Chicago to St. Louis, and it started out west in Sacramento. So there are the big four that the government talked with that were there. Charlie Crocker was the main main cog in, in this, but there was Huntington and Leland Stanford and uh, Mark Hopkins. The Mark Hopkins Hotel has his name. All of them have left their names and influence in California history, but they pulled their resources together and the Union Railroad was built from Sacramento eastward 
Central Pacific was built from the east to the west, and they met in Promontory, Utah. It started in 1862. They met in 1869 and drove that golden spike. And they laid those tracks so fast that it was a terrible mess because for every mile that they laid tracks, they got alternating 10 square miles on each side of the railroad track. So the railroad barons, if you had money to begin with and the government assisted you in building the railroad and then you got all this real estate, men like uh, Carnegie and Jay Gould and J.P. Morgan, all those men that already had money put a lot into the railroad industry. And then they were rich in real estate as well. So it was an amazing venture. And most of those tracks had to be laid again. But once they got there and met, they're awarded their land. As you can imagine, coming from Sacramento eastward, they had to go through the Sierra Nevadas and they had to blast. And the Chinese were very useful in that process. The Chinese invented, you know, <laughs> the, the ammunition to do, <laughs> to do that. And they were slighter people. And they didn't have a mechanical devices to lower them and lift them. So they put them in, in baskets and lowered them over the cliffs of the Sierra Nevadas. They'd plant the dynamite and they had to light it. They had to be there to light it. And so they had to lift them up quickly or they'd get blown away. But they Run. were there doing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was an amazing job. But the captains of industry back east, they couldn't wait for that connection. Because of then course. you can get the metals from the west back to the finishing plants in the east and make your steel and build more railroads. Right. Well, interesting, interesting time. Uh, and now the idea of writing historical fiction, again, I'm coming back to this idea that uh, life sometimes throws us curveballs. And, and it's it's interesting, almost every guest I've talked to now, you're on like 700 <laughs> uh, in, in the last two, two or three years here. Uh, everybody's got this story where they had a plan for their life. They had a plan for what they wanted to do, but life threw them some curveballs, unexpected curveballs that initially seemed like it was going to be objectionable, but in some way it made a positive impact on their life. And it's, again, I, you know, when I come back to coincidences, 700 people I talk to all have that similar thread running through their life. I start to think it's not so much a coincidence. It's a way of whatever's out there trying to tell me, wake up and smell the coffee, man. This is this is what life is really all about. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your story as a younger person. Was this Obviously, Bakersfield was not um, on your roadmap to life, but is this where you want it to be? I mean, in terms of being an author now, were you more interested in being a teacher? Tell me about your past and what led you to where you are today. Yes, like a lot of uh, young people, it wasn't crystal clear to me, but from a young age, I was a reader and I was, I loved it. I learned to love reading and books by reading biographies that were written to a young audience. But I learned about Abraham Lincoln and Jim Bridger, the mountain man and uh, other authors and early Americans uh, through reading their biographies, which turned me eventually to there are a lot of great stories out there and uh, there's nothing more dramatic and, and uh, tragic than real life. So I got into mysteries as well. I went through all of the children's mystery books and as an adult went went forward in my reading in that area. And by the time I I went to college and I dropped out like so many women, you know, oh, he's graduating and he wants to get married. And OK, I better go ahead and 
take advantage of this opportunity at 19 years old. <laughs> Big mistake, but all my girlfriends did it. And um, so it kind of threw me into now what? Well, I'll pick up later on and, and uh, I'll, I'll figure this out later on. And life led me and led me. And it's that analogy of when you're given lemons, you get you make lemonade. Now, the the British Columbia part of it was beautiful. And I really didn't want to leave there and come to Bakersfield. But from that point on, I began to make a very good life. Uh, having my children here and raising them here and looking beyond, always looking beyond, traveling a lot. I always had it in my mind that I'm a writer. I always had, I've got a story to tell. Everything about my life is, it's some, uh, for many years, it was not something I'd planned, but then something I found out I enjoyed. So I watched life. I was one of those observers. And I knew I've got to tell this story and I've got to tell that story. I just wasn't sure when I'd get started. But when I went back to college, when my kids were in school, I had to go. I was an English major and a history major. And I realized I've got to teach it. I've got to tell it. I've got to write it. So it was that point in my life. In my 30s, I knew what I was supposed to do. Very cool. So, yeah. I, I think Thanks that's... Part of, and I know I get on a soapbox about this, but part of the reason we, we find so many unhappy people, uh, you know, they never actually connect with their purpose or find out, or, you know, we're on this discovery of trying to find out who we are, but sometimes those things can be right in front of us and we don't notice them. And sometimes it's just noticing uh, what, what life is telling you and what life is presenting you with in order to kind of discover your purpose and get on a track where you feel like I'm doing something for fulfilling with my life rather than just going to a, a job that I hate for the money or for the responsibility of, of having a steady job and a secure pension and all that kind of stuff, which so many people get wrapped up in and we'll find out oh, how, how miserable people are because they don't feel fulfilled in what they're doing. So congratulations on discovering that <laughs> and, right. and following it because it it's, not, it's not a common thing. Now, uh, we talked about race, but part of your uh, research uh, stuff also has to do with, with gender relations. And you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, women and, and young women going to college and stuff. The, uh, I, and again, I know you're, you're, now I know that your novel spans a long time, not just the 1850s and 1860s, but further on than that. But I'm curious about the role and the lifestyle of the women in Bakersfield or Cooks, <laughs> Cooksville in the 1950s and 1960s. Tell me a little bit about what that, because they they were not any better than the, the racial people. They didn't have a vote or any or, or any of that stuff either. They were kind of second, they were, they were definitely second class citizens, right? Right, yeah, and my characters portray that. They are, they're, uh, unless they own a restaurant, which, several of my my female characters do um there are founders in this family who have who are long time restaurateurs and so those stories come through and of course i've fictionalized them enough that it's not really those people the restaurant's really not that restaurant so don't come after me it's uh it's fictionalized well, but uh, the the typical role for a female in the 1950s was to be fabulous you know and to conform and you don't want to stand out. I mean, uh, a woman's liver would never, never make it in the 50s 
but there's enough distance from World War II and the Depression by the 60s that some women are ready for change, far, really ready. But, you know, the women got the vote in 1920. It's federal. So they could vote here. They could vote anywhere across the United States in federal elections. But they still had that cult of domesticity foisted upon them. Your place is in the home. Just watch the television uh, sitcoms. Every time Lucy tries to find a job, she's just a clown. She screws up. So I make their roles exactly as they were for the 50s into the 60s. And they're really not taking off and being independent until the 80s and 90s in my book. Right. That's an interesting thing. Yeah, and you mentioned, because I, I think when I think of those, I think of Donna Reed and uh, I, can't, I know Father Father Knows Best and, and Leave it to Beaver and, and Ward Cleaver and uh, June. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Lucy, I think of as a kind of a trailblazer uh, in, in fact that she was uh, very much in charge of her own destiny and she kind of wore the pants in the Desi Lou kind of uh, and she was uh, when you talk about race relations she you know op- op- married a man who was uh, not of her race and now and very proud uh, to bring put that in people's faces and say you know what you know this is the way uh, America is going to be moving forward and so right. I think she was a bit of a trailblazer but um, in terms of because again, I go back to your uh, intro here. Your research background and doing a lot of research. And I talk to a lot of writers about this, about process. And there are people who, uh, you know, basically when they sit down to write a novel, uh, some of them are just fly by the seat of your pants, and I'm going to start with the blank page, and wherever it takes me, it takes me. I'm imagining there was a whole lot of preparation and. Uh, you know, research and, and that kind of stuff that went into it before you even went to the typewriter or however, you, whatever your chosen method of actually getting it down to transcription of it. Uh, tell me about your process and, and what you go through and how you keep real history from fictional history and keep them separate. I think that's got to be a bit of a challenge. So if you could talk to about all that. Right. For, for me, um, my first book took place in the 1600s and I was writing it at uh, or 1999, uh, 2000. And, and at that point, I mean, the internet was very helpful, but I still had to have a lot of books around on my study and I'm crawling around from page to page because I want to make sure that the real history of the period always shows through the fictionalized characters and circumstances. They're going to be dramatic and entertaining. And in this case, based on reality, but I want the true history to show through. And since I, you know, I've had the undergraduate and the graduate work in history. Uh, that is my passion. So it's important to me that I'm passionate about the topic I'm going to write about. So whenever I'm writing, it has to be something I care deeply about. And it took me a long time to realize I cared deeply about telling these stories. And it really helped when I met my character and got to know him. We had lunch with him weekly. We had him in over to my house before we were married. I had him for dinner and he would tell me these stories and I'd shocked, absolutely shocked. And I'd say, I've got to tell your story. And he says, well, you know who wants to tell my story? Dennis Quaid. Yeah. Dennis Quaid called him because he'd looked, he'd been studying the trial of Spade Cooley and he wanted to do a movie about it. So our, our friend Lenny, was going to meet with him for dinner. Um, that really was the final 
message to me. This is this is a story worth telling. If Hollywood wants to tell it, I want to tell it. Right. So our character passed away in 2011. We've known him for a couple of decades. Steve had known him much longer. They'd been good friends and in the legal community. And that story hadn't been told yet. So yeah. I decided this is this is it. As a memorial to him, I have to talk about his days in Vegas, his early, and the, the attorneys he worked with, uh, people here knew about this attorney and would spread the word. If you want to commit a crime and get away with it, go see him. Wow. And uh, for a certain <laughs> amount of money. And uh, the, I know his paralegals. Some of them live in my neighborhood here. And uh, uh, my husband's paralegal knew the same story she just finished the book and she said i can't believe that's really lenny that's really him and uh that's that's what came down when i heard that i thought the whole story of this man has to be put on page wow and it's going to be the dynamite uh, into the 20th and 21st centuries so i, I love and, that and i'm jealous not because my jealousy has nothing to do with De dennis quaid you know, most people oh, hollywood that's uh just your relationship with uh, and, and be able to hear these uh firsthand stories from a guy who lived it that would be you know that to me is the most exciting kind of stuff that and be be able to pick the brain of somebody who's got right. these deep stories that I'm very jealous of that situation. Well, if, if you want to hear more about coincidences or not coincidences, because it's happened to me over and over and over as I do my research, I was writing about Lenny in Vegas, uh, investigating the mob, rubbing shoulders with Bugsy Siegel. And he did know him. Bugsy called him kid. Hey, kid. Hey, you want to come to this uh, party? So he was there at the opening of the Flamingo when it was finally built. But I'm writing the story and putting him there. And he's, you know, he's visiting the ladies of the night and doing all the things that Lenny does. But he, as the Flamingo is being built, I thought, you know, Del Webb came to California. He might have been passing through Vegas at the time. He could be involved in the building. So I decided, thank goodness it's at your fingertips. So I just went to Google and brought up. Sure enough, Del Webb was the lead. He was managing the construction of the Flamingo Hotel. It just popped into my mind. Wow. It's like a like someone is sitting on your shoulder saying, uh-uh, how about this one? And it was. He was there. I wasn't lying. <laughs> right. So those those kinds of coincidences happen when you're in the zone. That's what I call it. You know, I'm on, really, I am on the right track. I must be... Um, positing the right characteristics on these people because they really were there so yeah somebody like me can run with that kind of stuff because i am very prone to um magical thinking and thinking right. what uh, the intuition part of that is just sometimes too hard to ignore and i know as a person of, uh, as, who was equally uh, turned on by science that's that's a very a uh, non-scientific way to look at the world, but I, I, I have a difficult time not believing there's something more out there when I hear stories like that. So right. uh, it, it's just interesting to me. Now, one of the problems, and I, I'm not saying this to be negative to, towards your book it, or any book in, in the genre, but one of the problems I have with historical fiction uh, as, is it confuses me as to what the real facts are because I'm a believer. And I've talked to a lot of historical fiction writers, and they have characters I know, which is, which I'm, I understand that you're 
your novel was very careful and you were very careful not to actually uh, have them by the same name and all that stuff to confuse that stuff. But part of the, the issue, like when I hear Wyatt Earp, Wyatt Earp in a fictional uh, historical novel, that will confuse me as to what the real facts are. And then I feel like, a, 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 you know, a, where, where do you separate real history from fictional history? Was that, uh, did that kind of uh, thought process into your mind when writing this stuff. Like, I don't want to confuse people. I don't want to. I don't want to confuse history with fiction and all that stuff. And where you draw the line? Yeah, it's it's very important to me that it be authentic. And if you read my book, you will find that the real history is easier to prove. The background, what's happening in the nation, what's happening in California, the time frames are correct for the real history. I take them from the headlines because my characters read the newspaper. Their, their, lead, their community leaders, they go into L.A. and Southern California. So what's happening nationwide and throughout California is happening in my book from the headlines. When I say ripped from the headlines or from history, it's, I stick to those real topics. And then my fictional characters, which are based on real people, they depict the zeitgeist of each decade. They are following, the, you know, they're driving the real cars. And they're listening to the real songs of that date and that summer. So I'm very cautious about that because it bothers me dramatically. When I hear or I'll see a preview of a movie and I know it's supposed to be history, I get that dread, that dreaded feeling. I'm, I'm going to get mad. <laughs> We're going to go to the theater. And I'm going to watch this and I'm going to be sitting there saying that's incorrect. Uh, I want to tell you right now that didn't happen. <laughs> I yeah, I'm so the same way. <laughs> I don't I don't like that at all. No, no, I don't like uh, uh, the Hollywood version of, I love La Amistad, the real story, but uh, them dancing in the background with the fires blazing, they, you know they'd never allow that in the Connecticut jail, in right. the Connecticut. Um, anyway, uh, that really bothers me greatly. So I'm mindful of it all the time that I'm writing to separate, make sure that Everyone knows this is real history in the background. Right. My characters depict the spirit of the times, but they're not. Wonderful. Uh, now tell me a little bit about Bakersfield as and there are, we kind of think of like different cultures in, in Cal California is like a country unto itself. And you have the southern, you have L.A., which is just like, I don't know, fake <laughs> the uh, you know it's all our Hollywood uh, stuff. Then you have Northern California in this um, very liberal, very hippie-ish type of vibe to it. And then in between, what what is that like? Is is there any spillover from those cultures? And I, I'm guessing it's probably more Northern California, more the San Francisco vibe than L.A., right? No, I don't think so. Fresno really? is because it's a little closer, and the people of Fresno uh, travel back and forth. Uh, quite a bit, but I, I've, you know, I have children in various parts of California and Reno, Nevada, and so I travel the length of it a lot. My oldest daughter graduated from UC Berkeley. My second daughter graduated from Chapman University and then went on to medical school in Florida. My son graduated from USC. So they've picked up cultural ideas, and my oldest daughter still lives in the Bay Area. So, um, and I lived in San Francisco, so I have a, a, a feeling or a flavor for the vastness of cultures in California. 
And the thing about the Central Valley is they are, the towns here have definite borders and definite cultures that you don't find anywhere else. And, and they feel proud of it. They feel proud of their traditions and their centuries of culture. And it's still a little wild west. And there are the gun clubs and the hunting clubs. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a menagerie. It truly is a menagerie. And you've probably watched movies or TV shows where Bakersfield is the butt of a joke. Right. Um, Almost I, all I, of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Always. You don't hear anything positive about it. And I remember at times when friends and I would go stay, uh, you know, in a beach community down south and, and they'd ask, oh, where are you from? Bakersfield. And you could see that look on their face like they just smelled something a little raw. Raunchy. Unless they were Buck Owens fans, then they would get jealous. Like, oh, do you exactly. know Buck? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was born in Kentucky, and my Kentucky and Indiana relatives were real excited about Bakersfield. Yeah. <laughs> because they love that country western sound. Yeah. But, but right. it is. That's the interesting thing about valley towns. Right. They, well, you you don't look at them and think, oh, that's California. That's the real California. You don't think of that. There's no beach feeling. There's no uh, liberal feeling. There's mm. so somebody in one of the chat rooms says Fresno is the Albuquerque of of California. Uh, I, I can I don't know about that, but I haven't been to Fresno. But uh, <laughs> it, it's an interest because he's from Albuquerque. I know the guy who who wrote that. Uh, well, so. you know, he's it's right at the the base of the mountains. There, you it's it's like a an entrance into Yosemite. And an entrance into some of the ski resorts right. east of uh, Fresno. So, yeah, I'm I'm not criticizing Fresno. It's unique, right. and um, so is Bakersfield. Right. Um, so now this book, uh, I'm imagining that you, you, and I don't know this well, so I'm asking really. Uh, I'm imagining it was a quite a a labor of love, and and, and when I say labor, emphasis on the labor. How long did it take you, and did you feel fulfilled when you were done with it, like, uh, or relieved when you were done with it? Oh, I was thrilled because I, I'll put a book aside when I get to a certain point where I don't exactly know what's going to happen yet and I'll cogitate for a few days and then I'll pick it up and I'll reread the la latest work and I'll make some adjustments and I'll start writing again. But when I put that finishing touch on, I was in love with it. I just absolutely, I just knew this, this is really good drama and it comes to such a good conclusion. And the friends that I have that have read it, they were riveted to the end. I was on a radio show yesterday morning here and Tony Lee said the same thing. He says, you know, I don't normally like fiction at all. I read real history and I read real facts and I don't want to confuse the two. He said, but I'm finding this riveting and I think it should be on the big screen. And I said, keep talking, please <laughs> keep talking because I feel very good about it. I started it back in 2012 that long ago yeah. and then i was hired by another college to teach african-american history and i was so loaded with coursework i was teaching american economic history and u.s history and women's history at college of the canyons in santa clarita and then antelope valley college hired me to teach african-american history so i had to put it on hold for a while and occasionally i'd get back to it and read through it and touch it up again but it was the shutdown of COVID that enabled me to finish the book and just really focus on it. I was still teaching a lot of courses, but they were all 100% online. 
I didn't have to drive right. so I could focus on it. So that's was, a long space in, in time yeah. when you pick it up again and finish it. Yeah. Uh, does that process make you, because it could get, it could either one or the other, because it was such a satisfying uh, conclusion for you. Some, some might take that as fire to, I can't wait to start another book. And some might say, I, you know what? I've, I've done the, the work that I need to do. I'm satisfied with that. There's no need to write another book. Where, do, where does it affect you and, and, the, and your perspective on that? Right. I needed a little break. I did. And I was so happy with working on promoting it. But there's also the other stories in my head that are going on that I need to uncover. I just need to figure out how real, how true <laughs> the next book is going to be. Yeah. It in, it involves uh, my early life and my own path more personally. So that's going to be sticky. Yeah, that's but tough, I, man. It, yeah, it is. <laughs> I know. I, I'm going through the same thing uh, in, in trying to, you know, there are some, and I'm kind of a blabbermouth anyway, especially on this program. I, I give away too much about my personal life, uh, and I, I'm trying to uh, make some changes with that. But I, I tend to kind of, once those I open the door, it's hard to put a, a tap on it and, and say, okay, you can't can't give away all that informa personal information. But sometimes you're writing about yourself. It's really difficult not to. Um but what I, what I wanted to bring up to you was the idea of it being made a film. It sounds like it would make a fascinating film, uh, except for the fact that it covers so much time and the periods and, and all the production work that would go into it. But what I would say to you, and I say this to a lot of authors who have books and, and think about in terms of how it would be a movie, Hollywood got really lazy and they want you to kind of re do the screenplay yourself or at least a first draft of a screenplay so that they know that they 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 have to don't have to do much work at all we can handle off the screenplay have you given any thought to that process of of uh transforming this book into a screenplay to make that idea of a movie happen um i have i have and my husband keeps egging me on in that direction he yeah. said for years you know you know you need to do screenplay you need to start working on that and so um, I friends who have read the book and he both believe that it should be a series, a streaming series, because there's so many stories right. in that from 1846 to 2011. That's when when that that's, story. That's ends. a long time to that's cover a in a story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, he's right. I think it's a series or you know that kind of stuff, and that's playing well right now. And I tell you another thing. The business side of Hollywood loves that because it's it's like you can build in an addiction and a repeating audience and a, a stream of revenue that never dies. So they love that stuff. I'm thinking like of Yellowstone and those kind of shows oh, that are out there. love Yellowstone. Yeah. Just love it. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I appreciate you stopping by here and, and giving me uh, this education today. There's so much, you know, uh, to, to be able to talk to a, a, a history professor, it's like I could do, you know, it's a gift to me. I could do that every day, all day, every day and be in my glory. And so I appreciate you coming by. I wish you great success with this book. I hope it does get turned into a movie. I have the URL to your website, sarahcburns.com. 
uh, scrolling along the bottom, it's in, also in the description. I will put the link in the description where you can go to Amazon and buy the book today if you are in, so inclined and interested. And please, if you do read it, uh, leave a, a review because that always helps and, and helps get the uh, SEO up there, but also helps with, uh, you know, getting convincing more people to uh, take the leap and, and buy the book. So uh, I appreciate your, your time here today, and I, I thank you for coming. Any final words from you before we say goodbye? Oh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. You've made it very easy for me to open up, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate nice I appreciate that that you feel that way, and it means the world to me to be able to do that with people and and get them talking and uh, about their work because that that's what I'm here for. And I thank you very much. So, uh, thank you, Matt. Uh, till next time, and next book you have you you owe me another a repeat appearance when you do your next book, or or okay. if you sign a movie deal, let me know and come back. Oh, and we'll, we'll great. Great, I will. Thank you. Be well. Bye for now. Sarah C. Burns, folks. Uh, The book, again, is called Cooksville, USA. Uh, It's available on Amazon. The link will be in the description. I hope you enjoyed this program. I hope you are as uh, intrigued by the idea. I mean, 1846 to 2011. Wow. Uh, There's a lot of story in that book. I I haven't read the book, obviously, yet. I will. Uh, but I was under the impression it was basically from 1850s to 1860s, not covering such an expansive period. So, uh, because when we talk about the westward expansion, I, I think of it as ending by 1890s, 1900s. But who knows uh, how little I know about what I claim to love is history. So, but always intrigued, always interested in it. Hope you love this program. I hope you got a lot out of it. And I'd love to hear your comments. Info at minddogtv.com. Info at minddogtv.com. Tonight at 8 p.m. I'm really uh, working without a net here, folks. Uh, I have a guest book who is giving me almost uh, no information about what the show's about at all. It's about a, a Bro Nouveau uh, podcast. That's all I know. I'm not even sure who the host is, but whoever it is will be with me at 8 p.m. tonight. This is really going to test me as an interviewer because I I have done no preparation because I couldn't do any preparation. Uh, PR uh, agent for the podcast contacted me and booked this person on the show. We're going to talk about their podcast, which deals with a lot of race rate relation stuff uh, and men issues. And we're going to be talking about men's stuff and men's stuff in today's world can mean a lot of different things but that's all i know so flying without a net tonight hope you'll join me and and, uh kind of uh watch me squirm as i try to work my way through that interview at 8 p.m tonight should be a fun and interesting one different for me absolutely hope you'll join me then until then i'm matt apple from the mind podcast have a great rest of your day bye for now
Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.